Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. Keeping rules and regulations won't get us into heaven. An eternal perspective helps us understand that our right standing with God comes from faith in Jesus Christ alone, by His sacrificial death for us on the cross. Cheryl's message titled, Living with an Eternal Perspective. You know, we can get by with a lot before men. It's easy to deceive men. You know, you can be fighting with your husband and somebody will look, look at Cheryl just encouraging Brian. Oh yeah, I'm encouraging him all right. You know, people don't always know what's going on and we can be deceived and we can deceive others. But God knows the heart. Job looked very righteous compared to those friends that came to comfort him. And they're accusing him and Job's like, "Uh uh-uh, you might have done that, but I didn't do that. And Job kept asserting his righteousness, asserting his righteousness, because compared to those men, he was righteous. But what happened in Job 38, the presence of the Lord came down. And in the Lord's presence, nobody is righteous. And Job, all of a sudden, instead of comparing himself to other men and justifying himself before men, he was in the presence of a living God and there was no justification. Jesus tells us that what is highly esteemed before men is an abomination in the sight of God. And I think of those things like might makes right or popularity or worldly riches that are esteemed by men. But God esteems things like sacrifice and love and missionaries who give up all their bank accounts to just serve Jesus. Years ago, we had a relative call us up and she was very, very upset because a woman that she worked with who was highly educated, who was making lots and lots of money, felt called to go to the mission field. And she was selling everything to go on the mission field. And this relative was saying, stop her, stop her. Tell her she can make more money and be more effective here and just tithe just 10% to those mission causes. But this woman, she wants to give up everything, her career, go to a place where her education doesn't count just to tell Muslims about Jesus. Will you tell her no? And we're like, she wants to do what? That is so cool. That is so precious. And she's like, yo, what's going on with you people? Because what men esteem is an abomination to God. But giving up everything to tell people about Jesus. oh, Oh, that means so much. 
And when we get to heaven and we see the tables turned, as we will in this parable we're just about to study too, you will see the glory of esteeming what God esteems. Now, Jesus is going to show us that the law cannot justify. You see, they had the law and the prophets and they were up to John the Baptist. But we see through the law and the prophets, Israel had gotten so off. But Jesus said, now the kingdom of God has come and men are pressing into it, not by adherence to the law, but through Jesus. And yet the law has not lost one iota of its value because Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. You see, because the law is still in full force, we need Jesus. We need an advocate. Our righteousness, again, compared to other people can look really great. But when it comes up against the living God and his law, we are all shattered. And Jesus is showing these Pharisees, no, the law is still in full force. He says, not one tittle of the law will fail. And he gives an example of marriage. Now, there was a school of halal in Jesus' time, and that was a rabbinical thought rabbinical writings, which took a very liberal view of the law. And in this liberal perspective on the law, it said that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. If she burnt the meal, if a better looking woman or younger looking woman came his way, he could abandon his wife and be married. And he said, well, you know, the law of Moses permitted it. And Jesus says, no, The law is still in full force and marriage still means marriage. You can try to explain it away. You can justify it before men, but God sees. And the allowances that men make are not allowances that God makes. Our only hope, our only advocate is to press into the kingdom of God through Jesus But an eternal perspective shows us that the law is in full force and our righteousness needs to come from Jesus Christ and not the law. The law will not get us into heaven. The law will not put the kingdom of God in our hearts. But Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice on the cross, by dying in our place, brings the kingdom of God to our hearts. Now we need an eternal perspective on others. Luke 16, 19 through 31, Jesus tells a story. Now I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't believe this is a parable. It might be. And if I'm wrong, I'll find out in heaven. But I don't think it is because Jesus gives us a name, Lazarus. We know the name of a poor beggar who sits outside a rich man's house, just hoping for crumbs. Lazarus has sores all over his body and the dogs come and lick it. That's his only relief. And he's completely ignored by this rich man. I think it's interesting that we're never told the name of this rich man. You see, an eternal perspective gives value to those who have no value on earth. 
And it takes away the value of those who have their value on earth and have put no value in heaven. We're told that both men died, but Lazarus, it begins right there at death. Lazarus is carried by angels up to heaven. I love this. Ray Bentley, um, who's a pastor in San Diego, lost his brother. His brother had been homeless, had been a drug addict, had finally come back to Jesus and was beginning to walk with the Lord. And he was stepping out of a convenience store at the same time that police got an emergency call on the radio. And the police didn't see him as they gunned the gas pedal and they hit Ray's brother and Ray's brother was thrown into the air and he died of massive injuries. And Ray told me he could not get over his brother's death. He could not. It haunted him at night. He would wake up. He would cry at odd moments. Until one night when he went to sleep, he saw that scene that he had seen over and over again in his dreams, playing out again. He saw his brother coming out of the convenience store. Often he would wake up screaming, no, no. He saw the police car bearing down on his brother. But this time he said he saw something he had never seen before. He saw in his dream these angels swooping down from heaven, grabbing his brother and taking him up to heaven before the point of impact. And he said he saw two scenes. He saw the angels carrying his brother to heaven. And he saw the police car hit an empty corpse. And he said from that moment on, he had such comfort knowing that the angels carried his brother to heaven. This is the hope of every believer, a divine escort to heaven. I think about October 3rd, 2013, when the angels came to 1624 Antigua Way, grabbed my dad and said, Chuck, long enough. We're taking you someplace where you're going to just love it. We're taking you to meet David and Abraham and Isaac and Paul. Here we go, Chuck. Oh, what a glorious day that was. But the rich man, Mr. No Name, he's just buried in the dirt by men. Do you get the difference? Angels, men. Lazarus and the rich men both end up in a place called Hades, but there's a great gulf separating the two portions. One, people are being comforted by Abraham. They've got association with Abraham. There is water. There is refreshment. There is joy. And it seems to me that they cannot see the people on the other side who are in misery and torment. Abraham sees, but Lazarus is not aware of it. But the rich man calls across the gulf to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, send Lazarus and make him wet his finger and bring it over and touch my tongue. Look at this rich man, unchanged. He still wants Lazarus to serve him. He doesn't realize, you know what? Conditions have changed here. 
the last are first and the first are last. You're no longer a rich man. You no longer have prestige. You no longer have all the advantages. Now Lazarus, who you did not esteem, has all the advantages. He is not your servant any longer. He is the son of Abraham in the presence of Abraham. The rich man then asks if Abraham will send Lazarus back to earth to tell, you know, will you send him back as a beggar again to get the crumbs and everything but a risen from the dead beggar? To tell my brothers not to come to this place, to warn them. Abraham says, look, they've got the law and the prophets. If they listen to the law and the prophets, they won't come to this place. You know, the Pharisees had the law and the prophets, but they weren't listening. They weren't truly reading it. They weren't really open to it. They were interpreting it according to their self-indulgences. And it was not doing them any good. And the rich man says, no, but if one rose from the dead, then they would listen. But Jesus said, even if one should rise from the dead, they will not listen. Men are making eternal choices in how they live now. The rich man never stopped regarding Lazarus as a beggar beneath him, even in hell. He never considered or helped Lazarus when he had ample opportunity in life. Abraham is saying that men are responsible in their lifetime to hear Moses and the prophets and act accordingly. If they do not regard Moses and the prophets, they will not listen even to one like Jesus who rises from the dead and conquers it. Some have tried to equate this Lazarus as the one in Bethany that Jesus raised from the dead. Who knows? Again, I think it's a true story. But the point is this, hell is real. And those who go there are in torment. And those who go there do not regard the law of the prophets. They ignore the one who was raised from the dead. And while they are there, they are still unrepentant and unchanged. But God compensates in eternity for the deficits on earth. As it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, that this light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far greater weight of glory. And we look not on the things that are seen, for they are temporal, but the things that are unseen, for they are eternal. For believers, it's been said that this is the closest they will ever be to hell. And for unbelievers, earth is the closest they will ever be to heaven. God compensates in eternity for the deficits on earth. There's an association with Abraham. There is comfort. All needs amply met. No more servitude. Carried by angels, that divine escort to heaven. And identity. Name is remembered and known. Next, in chapter 17, Jesus gives us an eternal perspective on offenses. First of all, we are to know on earth that offenses are inevitable. You know, people are always trying to make earth utopia or to make heaven on earth. Earth is full of offenses because earth is full of sinners. And as long as there's sin, there will be offenses. As long as people are self-centered and self-indulgent, they will rob from others and they will hurt others. Life is going to be full of pain and injury to the innocent. 
because that is life on earth. But even though that is life on earth, we are not to be the cause of offenses. We are not to be little offenses. Well, you know, everybody gets hurt. This is earth. No, we're still to hate sin. Even though there are offenses, we are to hate sin and to have a serious view of sin. And we are to take heed to ourselves and say, whoa, it would be better for a millstone to be put around my neck and for me to be drowned in the sea than that I should offend an innocent one, that I should bring offense. Jesus in another portion of scripture said, you know what? It's better to cut off your hand if your hand offends you. It's better to pluck out your eyes. You know, if the computer is the source of pornography, it's better just to get rid of the computer than that it would continue to feed that lust. We don't take a serious enough view of sin, but an eternal perspective gives you a serious view of sin. But how are we to deal with offenses? If we have an eternal perspective, how are we to deal with sin? There's three ways that we deal with sin. One is we take heed to ourselves. We make sure that we're not the offender. And we need to resist the temptation to sin. Secondly, we forgive offenders. How do we deal with sin? We forgive it. We forgive it. You know, forgiveness, the word means, actually in the Greek, to cancel a debt. When somebody sins against us, we lose something. Maybe we lose possession, we lose innocence, we lose something. And we feel that they should pay it back. What they've taken, they should pay back to us. But sin says, you owe me nothing. And whatever you owe me, God will give me back. And I don't want it from you. I want it from God. So we are to rebuke it. You did wrong. And then let it go. Release them from the debt. Even if the offender keeps sinning against you, don't let unforgiveness get a grip because it will bring you down. We see in David's life where he has a son, Absalom. And Absalom absolutely is so righteously angry that his brother Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Absalom takes Tamar into his house and says, I'll protect you. This is so wrong. But then David doesn't do anything about it, his father. And Absalom begins to burn with indignation and anger. And that offense that he hated so much in his brother Amnon of raping his sister Tamar, Absalom becomes a rapist because in his rebellion and in his anger and in his unforgiveness and his bitterness, we're told that when he rebels against his father, David, he sets a tent on the roof of the palace and he rapes all of his father's concubines. You will become what you hate if you let unforgiveness continue in your heart. That offense that you hate so much will become your personal offense. So, how do we deal with offenses? We take heed to ourselves. We forgive offenders. But finally, we need faith. We need an increase in faith. When Jesus was telling the disciples to forgive, they rightly responded, increase our faith. We need more faith. 
the way. You know, as Shakespeare rightly said, no, it wasn't Shakespeare. I remember now it was somebody else. But he said to forgive is divine. I remember Googling it going, oh, it's not Shakespeare. It's some John guy. Probably, you know, you're like, Cheryl, I know that one. Oh, well, you must give it to me then. But faith is what it takes to forgive. The disciples realized the wickedness of offenses and that they would need faith to recognize offenses, faith to resist temptation, and faith to forgive others. And so they asked the Lord to increase their faith. Now, we all want an increase in faith. Don't we just wish Jesus, you know, just went, poof, you have more faith. Ha ha, I have more faith. But it's a process. It's a process. And Jesus said it must go in like a mustard seed. He said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, that same type of faith that goes in small but grows exponentially. This is the faith. You have to first let it get into your heart and get implanted in your heart. That faith. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He died for my sins and rose again from the dead. And he is the resurrection and life. And because he lives, I too will live. We let that go into our heart and we let it go deep into our heart. And then it begins to spring up and begin to grow and takes over our heart. Faith begins to take over. And when faith begins to take over, it uproots the mountains of unforgiveness, the mountains of addiction, the mountains of sin that we could not deal with in our own life, the mountains of offenses and the mountains of unforgiveness. Faith gets rid of it. Why? Because faith has an eternal perspective again. Faith says, this is not my home. I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Eternity is now in my heart and I am going to heaven. And I don't want to let these trivial earthly things keep me back from all the heavenly rewards. I'm going to heaven. Jesus then gives another parable to show what active faith looks like in verses 7 through 10. And he says, this is what it is. It is like servants who are obsessed with the work and pleasure of their master. They live to serve and to bless the master. That's what their whole lives are about. Their lives are not about when do we get to eat? When do we get to rest? When do we get to sit down? It's about obedience of the master's will. It's about doing the master's work. And it's about pleasing the master. This is what they're preoccupied with. And with an eternal perspective, we are occupied. This is what faith does. Faith makes us preoccupied with the master's will, with the master's work, with the master's pleasure. Because we are going to someday be in the presence of the master. And when we get in his presence... And he begins to commend us for the things we did on earth. We'll say, Lord, it was nothing. You gave us the power. You gave us the blueprints. You gave us the opportunity. We're just unworthy servants. It was your love. It was your power. It was your field, your strength, your work. 
faith empowers us. That's the eternal perspective. Now, we have an eternal perspective on the divine work of Jesus in our life. Verses 11 through 19, we're told of these 10 lepers that see Jesus afar off. As Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he's passing through these this village, these lepers call out and say, Jesus, son of David, showing the messianic title, have mercy on us. And Jesus says to them, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they turn and as they're going, obeying the word of Jesus, they begin to look down and see that they are being cleansed as they obey. They are being cleansed. And one, a Samaritan, turns around and in a loud voice begins to glorify God. He falls at Jesus' feet and he begins to thank Jesus. Offenses are inevitable and everywhere. As long as there is sin, there will be offenses. How can we have an eternal perspective and deal with these things? Jesus teaches us that we are to have a serious view of sin and that we need to take heed of ourselves and have faith that resists temptation and forgives others. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll see how having an eternal perspective helps us prioritize our life as we continue our Jesus Magnified study in the Gospel of Luke with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.